This program contains adult content. Is there a God? A big atheist. Really? What, am I an idiot? Come on. That yes, it would be nice if you could throw your sins and your responsibilities on someone else. But it's not true. It looks like far left lunacy. I don't believe that it's true that religion is moral or ethical. You don't need to follow anybody! It's not human intelligence! If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? Hello and welcome to the Godless Revolution. Today is Monday, January 3rd. This is episode 363. My name is Dan Ellis, and I'm joined by two fabulous co-hosts, Mr. Ryan Duffy. I'm here. And Mr. Taylor Grin. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How you guys doing? I'm here. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Present. Accounted for. I survived the holidays. Yeah. Did you get, did you have a good holiday? We didn't, we didn't talk about the holidays at all. How were, were they good, enjoyable, fun? I'm pretty Uh, sure our household got Omicron. Oh, oh, no. Um, So, so Sandra and I got boosted on or about December 1st, like somewhere at the very beginning of the month. And then our younger brother came home with what looked like a sinus infection, like two weeks into December. Mm. Um, And he isolated the shit out of himself. I was kind of tracking him around the house and wiping (laughs) down everything that he touched. Um, But then Sandra started getting what looked like a sinus infection. And um, for her, it got pretty bad where she was having like, like a fever and shakes and muscle soreness and that kind of thing. And my younger brother had a little bit less of that. And I had like my right nostril would be stuffy when I woke up in the morning. And the cough that I've had since I got back from the Middle East was slightly worse. Um, And the symptoms seemed to match because both of them took antibiotics and followed them as prescribed. And they did jack shit, Mm -hmm. which indicates it's probably viral. Mm -hmm. And let's be real, right? Um, Not so, a whole but, lot of viruses that are going around. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, the fact that it affected both of them and barely me at all is probably a sign that like the vaccine booster did what it does for me and made it so I was basically asymptomatic and it did what it does for her, which is kept her out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. We had a very isolated Christmas. Um, we had a friend, one friend gifted us um, a, a like pot of um, what's what's the shit called? Um, pot marijuana South soup. I'm brain farting the word um, uh, gumbo. He gifted oh. us a pot of gumbo because he has like this really good gumbo recipe and like literally left it on our doorstep nice. and was like, here it is. Like. Enjoy. <laughs> I don't um, want what you guys might have, so have fun. Merry Christmas. Pretty much, yeah. But uh, otherwise, I mean, we had a pretty good vacation, like notwithstanding. The holidays were good for us. It was just we were kind of sick throughout the whole thing. Yeah, that sucks. I'm sorry, man. That happens. Could have been worse. Like, we were no nobody had to go to the hospital. Everyone was, you know, fine. Yeah. Well, that's good. How about you, Mr. Duffy? I just took one day off of woodworking and we watched movies and got drunk. (laughs) That Mm -hmm, there sounds mm -hmm. like a fine idea. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, when I'm home right now, this 3D printer has been running like 24-7. Oh, yeah? I've been making some cool stuff. I got a cool dragon head I'm working on right now. Yeah. I'm Mm -hmm. painting. 
Yeah, those cool rocket ship. Those I so I sent you that that link for the book Inners. Like was, the book, the book ends. I've I've known about and book Inners. I'd never that had never been a thought, but they're really cool. I figured you might find yeah. that interesting. I was I was actually I was actually looking for like different monsters. I might be able to like print and do like a model bash mm. where I can like make my own versions of those things because they are really cool. I plan on doing something with that because I'm like that's really neat i didn't know that was a thing either yeah yeah i uh, i'm trying to remember who even showed the oh it was tracy's one of tracy's brothers who was over here uh he ran across him and was going to get some for someone else and i had him send that to me so that i could send it to you because yeah i saw it and thought oh ryan would probably like that oh yeah i thought it was, i'm like that's a really cool idea and i found one i found some that were like books mm. that had like things going on going up into them like a staircase with like someone standing on top of it that you could it was only the width of a book it wasn't like mm -hmm. a few and i'm like i kind of want to do something bigger like the ones in those photos like two or three books wide and yeah like something's coming out from between the books i'm like that's kind of neat yeah yeah they're they're really cool um my holiday was awesome i got to spend time with puppies and with the new grandbaby and she's just delightful i I've got to ask, did you get more puppies? No. No, I didn't get puppies. So so the deal is uh, Tracy's mother has a dog, a little dog that she's had for a very long time. And so Tracy's mother lived with us for quite a while uh, so that she could save up some money. She, you know, she didn't, she didn't have any kind of retirement of her own or anything. And so she was living with us so that she could save up some money. And then Tracy's grandmother and grandfather, their health started to decline. So Tracy's mother moved in with them so that she could take care of them. And then within the last, I want to say year and a half, um, within Tracy's family, Tracy has lost, um, both grandfathers, mm -hmm. both grandmothers, and then, uh, both of her stepdads. So six deaths. Yeah you know, in the immediate family within like the last year and a half. And Tracy's grandparents um, have both both been within the last year and Tracy's grandmother just within the last few months. And Tracy's mother now is in that house by herself with her little dog. Mm. And now her little dog is also dying. So no. she's just like, you know, and her mom has been, you know, in a, in a dark place for a while, she's been pretty depressed at the passing of both of her parents pretty close together. And she was really close with her mother and had been taking care of her. And it's just like, you know, she, she's like, I don't, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know what will happen to me if this little dog dies. Like I'll be left here in this house with nobody and nothing but ghosts. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's just, she's been pretty upset about it and, and been pretty depressed. And so Tracy was like, well, have you thought about getting another dog? You know, it would be, and, and it, it's one of those things where we didn't want, you know, the little dog to pass and then her mom be alone and, and sink even further into depression. So it's, well, maybe we should get you a dog now so that you'll have something to take care of, you know, if your dog passes anytime in the near future, but it would be best if, you know, we can get them now, help you try to train them, potty train them, all that kind of stuff. And so Tracy set out on a mission <laughs> to help her mom find yeah. a dog. And of course we're 
huge fans of Boston's mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, so, and Tracy's mom loves all of our dogs because they're awesome. Yeah. So uh, they started looking at rescues and everything. And then Tracy's mom found uh, an ad on KSL uh, for a lady in Provo who had a litter of uh, Boston puppies. And so uh, she saw one that she liked and we traveled down to Provo to go and visit the puppy to see if it would be a good fit and if Tracy's mom liked it. And while we were there visiting that puppy, um, the, the lady said, you know, Tracy's mom said, Oh, well, is this the only puppy that you have available? And the lady said, Oh no, we have another one. He's a little boy. I can go and grab him if you'd like. And so she brought him out mm-hmm. and his temperament was just, he's just super chill, super sweet. Just like he's a couch potato kind of dog which fits Tracy's mom's lifestyle. <laughs> so, so I was like, you know, if you're going to get, you know, if you're going to get one of these dogs, it would probably be better to get this guy because he's just so chillax. Like he's, he's going to be a great dog. And she's like, Oh, but this one is so much cuter. And I just, you know, I fell in love with her and I just really like her. And the lady's like, well, you know, you could just take both. And I'm like, <laughs> and I said, Oh, that's a thought. And then Tracy's mom was like, well, do you think I could? I would that be would that be a thing? And so, <laughs> yeah, just through this series of little things, yeah, she decided to get both dogs. And so, you know, we left. Uh, the The puppies were still weaning, so um, she picked them up Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas Eve. So either the twenty third or twenty fourth, and we drove her down there. You know, to she she doesn't she can't drive at night very well. You know, she's getting a bit older. She's got some health issues that. Uh, make it a little difficult for her to get around. And so we drove her down there, picked up the puppies, brought them back. And so, yeah, I got to spend, you know, the holidays with puppies. And then uh, Tracy got to spend um, several days in the hospital with Danica. It actually worked out pretty well because uh, Danica's baby daddy, I think I've mentioned that he's not one of my favorite people. That remains the case. Maybe (laughs) once or twice. And he, uh, because he did not get vaccinated, ended up contracting COVID. And then, because he's a selfish, cowardly, immature fuckhead, uh, because he didn't get vaccinated, also passed that to Danica, who was pregnant, which just... mm, boy oh boy made me love him all the more um putting you know our daughter and his child and our grandchild at risk because he won't get fucking vaccinated anyway i i'm getting angry and this is a happy tale (laughs) so uh because he and danica contracted covid um they they weren't going to allow him in Uh, for the birth, but they had scheduled it out so that, you know, they contracted COVID and Danica was going to go in and be induced into labor on the 23rd and, you know, have the baby. She was going to go into the hospital on the 22nd and then be induced into labor on the 23rd. But life being what it is threw everybody a curveball, and Danica went into labor early. And so, um, she checked into the hospital on like the 20th and because the 23rd had not arrived when Danica and the baby Danny would have been considered um, recovered from having COVID, he was not allowed to be there for the birth of his own child. The upshot of that is that Tracy was, she, she, you know, she basically volunteered to put herself in harm's way knowing that Danica has COVID 
Uh, but and that she would be staying in a room with her the whole time. But while Danica was in the hospital, they gave her um, the monoclonal antibody treatment. Uh, they they basically were throwing the kitchen sink at her um, to make sure that the pregnancy remained safe and okay and mm. to help her get through COVID. And so then Tracy just was able to stay in the hospital with Danica for, I think three full days. Like she couldn't, she couldn't come home. She just had to live at the hospital for a few oh, days, which meant that then I had to take time off work unexpectedly, but that was okay. Cause you know, I had to watch the dogs and take care of everything else around the house that, you know, I, I couldn't do if I was going to also be working. Um, because we split those duties while she's here. And when she wasn't here, then there was nobody else to do other things. So it worked out really well. Uh, Tracy and Danica bonded a whole lot. Tracy and the baby bonded a whole lot while she was in the hospital. And yeah, it's just, it worked out really, really well. Um, they, they got to spend a lot of really quality time together and talk through a whole bunch of stuff. And their, their relationship is better now than it ever has been. That's and good. Yeah. So that's, so that's awesome. And yeah, the upshot of that is that he was not there for the birth of his child. Tracy was kind enough to live stream it for him. Um, one of the saddest things that I have seen was Tracy sent me a picture and it says their first family photo and it's Danica in bed with the baby shortly after the birth. And then there's the phone with the baby's with the baby daddy's face on it that they wanted mm. their first family photo. And because he couldn't be there, all it, all it was, was the live stream of his face on the phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just thought that's a, that's a great tale that you can tell your child later in life, you know, that why weren't you there for I the wasn't birth? Willing to keep you safe from a deadly disease. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Didn't uh, increase my liking of him at all. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's going to be, uh, challenge going forward but i don't know it's it's been working out okay so far uh because danica has just come over here when he's decided to go do things like going snowboarding or going to see spider-man without oh. her while she stayed home and watched the kid because you know that's that's a thing yeah but uh we are pleased to bring you an awesome interview that we had with mr steve kuno uh who recently wrote a book entitled Shit Behind, Behind the, the Curtain, <laughs> Selling Sex in America's Holy City. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's have, okay, Dan. Like, Dan, you've, you've just gone through, like, a very ambivalent time. Like, have, <laughs> getting to see the birth of your first grandchild and that juxtaposed against the shittiness of his or her I'm an asshole. Kids are the same to me. You know, parent <laughs> unit being a complete dickhead. Like that's, that's hard to just segue into, Hey, we're going to introduce a book. Um, <laughs> and like, that's, that's one. Well, also how life. That's why you buy the hard okay. copy. So you have the name right there with you instead of on that Kindle thing. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and I have it See, here on, been on your Kindle, Dan. And I have yeah. it, and I have it here on screen. It's just that it's the very last bit of the information that I <laughs> no. have in this paragraph. <laughs> we had, we had a fantastic interview um, yeah. with Steve Kuno. Um, the guy has been writing for a very long time. This book is 20 years in the making, if you believe it. Um, it's one of those things where inspiration hit and then it kind of struck again many years down the line. He interviewed 
um, just a whole mess of people who are working in the sex industry. And he has found that both the providers that uh, engage in sex work, as well as the hobbyists who consume sex work um, are exactly like you and me. Um, and I, I highly recommend picking up his book. I think you're really going to interview or enjoy the interview that we've had with him. Um, that's coming up after this break. Hi, this is Yvette Dontremont, a.k.a. The Cybabe, and you're listening to Godless Revolution. You can find me at Cybabe.com, at my Twitter account, at The Cybabe. And if you've hunt really hard, you can find me at Pornhub. I dare you. Some people think... You can live without intimacy, without connection. I think that's total crap. A few years ago, a client emailed me, and he said, Today a miracle happened. Since my wife passed, I've been very lonely. I haven't so much as been hugged in over two years. I'm not handsome. I'm not rich. I don't know how to talk to women. But you held me. You rubbed my back. You listen to me vent about my grief. This might just be a job for you, but today you saved my life. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I don't work for a crisis hotline. I'm a sex worker. Thank you to everybody who has rated the show on iTunes and Stitcher and are following us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And to all our Patreon patrons, you make the show possible. Joining us via remote connection uh, is Mr. Steve Kuno. He's an author. You may remember him from a previous appearance on the show 320 episodes ago when he joined us for episode uh, 43 to talk about a book he co-authored with Joanne Hanks uh, titled... It's not about the sex my ass, confessions of an ex-Mormon, ex-polygamist, ex-wife. He's also a cancer survivor, copywriter, widower, father, grandfather, skeptic, and self-professed marketing know-it-all who has, for some strange reason, nevertheless agreed to come on the show to talk about his latest book, Behind the Mormon Curtain, Selling Sex in America's Holy City. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great, Dan. How about you guys? Oh, I'm good. I'm a grandpa now, so that's fun. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank Grandpahood you. is terrific. Yeah, she's amazing and melted my heart and is just my favorite thing in the world right now. Yeah, for sure. And who knew you had a heart? <laughs> we didn't. Some people. <laughs> everybody looks at my gruff exterior and says, well, that guy's going to be mean. And I'm like, I don't mean to scare people intentionally most of the time. Sometimes it works to my advantage. Usually I don't intend to scare people, but it just works out that way. Well, I think you should appreciate that because most people look at me and just walk away giggling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's In just... Fact, you know, now that your grandfather, wait till your kid, your grandkid can talk at you. When my granddaughter was six, I referred to myself as, quote, your handsome grandfather, unquote. And she said... You're not handsome. You're bald. And I said, well, can't I be a handsome bald guy? And she screwed up her face and said, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're being silly now, Grandpa. Stop it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, how old is she now, Dan? Oh, gosh. She's what? what she was two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite two weeks or maybe just two weeks. 
And birth weight was? Oh, gosh. I had this all written down somewhere, and now you've put me on the You're spot, and I can't, think of, <laughs> I can't think of what it was. I think it was six pounds. No, that's not right. She was tiny, uh, 29 <laughs> inches long. I remember that for sure. Uh, I was going to commit all of this to memory, and I thought I had until you put me on the spot, and now I feel like a terrible grandfather. Thanks a lot, mm-hmm. Mr. You're Mr. Cuno. Oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of kids have survived bad grandparents, so I wouldn't stress about it too much. Okay. Congratulations. That's terrific. Thank you very much. So you have written this book that I thought was just, it was, it was a lot of fun to read it. And I, and I told you before we started, you know, recording for, for actual release that I really enjoyed the book. It was, it made me laugh at different points. It made me think about a lot of things it made me it it challenged some of my preconceived notions about sex work um and mormons and and a lot of different things um what what i know that this has kind of been a labor of love because it's taken quite a bit of time between when you initially thought about writing this book and 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 its eventual release what prompted you initially to write the book well, you mentioned the earlier book, um, It's Not About the Sex My Ass, which is Joanne Hanks' story. Mm. Her story as told to me, and so is her story and my wordsmithing. And it was successful. Now, I, by trade, I'm kind of semi-retired now, but by trade for the last 40 years, I've been a, a marketing advertising writer. And I wrote two books on advertising, and neither one of them is sold worth a darn, which tells you how good a marketer I am, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but then Joanne and I paired up on this book, and it did really well. It's outsold. Now, we published that one ourselves, Mm. and it outsold 99% of published books. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was sitting around. I love to write, and I was thinking, what's my next project going to be? And I thought, well, you know, the intersection of religion and hypocrisy and humor and matters sexual seems to have some appeal. And then suddenly I remembered this woman who'd walked into my advertising agency 20 years earlier who had started a business, and she had trucks, and she had a warehouse, and she had employees, and she needed a brochure, And, you know, I like to chat with my clients. And so I asked, how did you capitalize your business? She kind of looked right and looked left and then said in a very soft voice, I used to be, or no, that's not used to be. She said, I'm a high priced call girl. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, oh, really? And suddenly I was so fascinated with that. I just started asking her question after question. And we got around to the brochure eventually, (laughs) but she just told me some stories and and uh, and it was amazing. It was this glimpse through a window that most of us don't even know exists, much less get a look through. And especially in Utah, because, you know, I've told people since I've moved to Oregon, I've told people, you know, I've written a book about prostitution in Salt Lake City. And their answer is, it exists there. <laughs> so I thought that might be the topic for a book. So then I kind of followed up on that and started writing, well- interviewing and writing, I should say. Yeah. Well, it, it was interesting to me that, like, she just volunteered that information to you, which, knowing you, yeah, I've known you for, gosh, several several years now. I don't see you nearly as often as I would like, but um, we've been we've been friendly acquaintances for quite some time now. But you are a very easy person to talk to, um, and I think 
It was interesting to me that she just volunteered that information. Like, I wonder if she had prepared in her mind some other lie that she would have told somebody else, but just volunteered that information to you because you're just so easy to talk to. You know, it hadn't occurred to me until just now when you brought that up. That was kind of an interesting thing when all she had to do was say, well, I, you know, I got a loan. I um, inherited the money. I Yeah. One father, I won the yeah. lottery. Like, I mean, it could have been a million different things. It just seemed, it seemed very interesting to me that she volunteered that information to you, especially in Utah with a white man that she doesn't know and is hoping to hire to provide marketing materials for her that it just, it just, it struck me as very interesting that she volunteered that information. Hmm. Yeah. That is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that was 20 years ago, so I have no way to find her. But, uh, you know, otherwise I'd call her up and say, hey, yeah, why did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was going to say I um, I didn't know as much about you as as Dan or Ryan did um, going into this and and reading your book. At first, I was like, oh, well, this guy is a journalist, right? Like that was my initial thought. It's like, okay, he's he's going out and conducting interviews and and doing a work of journalism here. Like it reminded me of uh, Crack Hour. Um, ooh, so I, ooh, that was- I love this guy. <laughs> when you write your review, please put that in there. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> yeah, no, but it had a, a very, um, oh my gosh, I'm brain farting the book. The one that he did about, uh, in, in under the, the banner of heaven. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that was the same kind of feel I got from this. So thank you. Yeah. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm really flattered. I brought crack hour to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that was my immediate thought, uh, especially having heard that you did um, uh, your previous book. Uh, it's not about the sex my ass. So, <laughs> so in, in that, in the course of that conversation, um, you know, one of the things I I said was, um, I imagine you could get a lot of people in trouble, and she just kind of said, "Oh, you've no idea," and she listed, you know, she said, "Well, first of all, almost all of her clients were practicing Mormons." But she had attorneys, doctors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, um, you name it. Um, you know, we have this this idea in our heads of the type of person who would or wouldn't call upon a sex worker, and there is no type. And I found that very interesting. But what I really found interesting was when, after listing the kinds of clients she had, the categories they fell in, and the fact that most of them were LDS, um, when she said, but of course, I'd never do that. And <clears throat> I'd never rat anybody out. Confidentiality matters in this business. And, uh, well, she had told me that one of her clients was a judge and another was a prosecuting attorney. So I said, what if you're in court in front of these guys? And she said, I'd still keep my mouth shut. I, I hope they'd feel terrible, but I wouldn't rat them out. And, and what struck me, and this is the question I've put to a lot of people since then is, between the uh, judge or the attorney who's going to prosecute her and the reviled sex worker who's going to keep their secrets, who shows the greater integrity? Mm-hmm. 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 And that was kind of the launch point of the book for me was, wow, these, these people are showing integrity. And, and then the, the more I got to know them through the interviewing process, the, uh, <laughs> That's always a fun one. When I told some friends, I'm interviewing prostitutes, one of them said, oh, is that what they call it now? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, my respect for these women, and I hope it comes through in the book, My, I finished this project with great respect for these people. Well, yeah. It almost seems, I was almost wondering if, 
the book that came out, was it the book you actually intended to write from the beginning? Cause it kind of seems like there's like you learned a lot in the process of actually interviewing them, which kind of might've changed your outlook. Definitely. My, at the outset, I thought I was going to write a knee slapping funny book about, you know, funny guys and going to see prostitutes. And there is some of that in there, but the sociological look at their lives and the, and, and the dehuman, the undehumanizing them, I guess humanizing them would be the word. Um, it was, an, it was quite a journey. Yeah. Very cromulent. Quite a journey. <laughs> well, and in, in one part of your, of your book, you write, the more I saw a provider's non-judgmental, caring perspective, the more it dawned on me that I'd been reproaching the subject with the very shaming attitude I'd thought myself above. Fantasies and activities were still topics of interest, but now I began putting the question in terms of unusual and creative requests instead of weird. Whatever harmless activities yeah. consenting adults choose to enjoy, I finally came to understand more power to them. And... When I read that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I love, I love when we have experiences in life that teach us something else, not only about other people, but about ourselves. And we learn from that and grow. And I just, I, I really enjoyed reading a lot of your little asides in the book where you talk about your personal experience and, and personal growth while doing this research and interviewing these sex workers. I had some comeuppances and, uh, and I didn't shy from that. And and the one you're referring to, yeah, I was going to have a chapter on um, my original question that I would put to these sex workers is tell me what the weird requests are that you get. And the first few I put that question to all kind of answered with, well, what's weird? I mean, if they want to do it, they need a place where they can go with no shaming and we're happy to help them. And and I suddenly realized, as you just quoted, you know, gee, they have a caring attitude. So I switched my my language from, you know, uh, what weird requests do they have to what are some unusual things some of them request and you know and I did get some good humorous material there I don't have any problem laughing at the funny requests I just don't want to be shaming the people if they enjoy that more power to them even if it makes us wince or makes us chuckle or makes us say "Ooh, I might want to try that mm -hmm. you know I mean the one I have to admit I laughed out loud when one woman said she said there's this guy who, who pays me to strip to my lingerie and lie down next to him on the bed in a hotel room. And then he doesn't touch me. He jerks off while he's watching SpongeBob cartoons. <laughs> that, that, no, would even, that one seems like it was born out of trauma. You know, as you describe in the book, it seems like he had a, um, that he was harassed by his babysitter doing just that. Oh, that was a different guy. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I miss, I misread. <laughs> Yeah, don't do that again, Taylor. Jeez. <laughs> no, that's not allowed. My your bad. profession depends on your reading, Taylor. I'm going to hang up now. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. And don't come back until you thought about what you've done. <laughs> so, no, but um, yeah, and even so, and I, I do, you know, I, would, I wanted to speculate as to what childhood trauma, as you put it, would have brought him to that. But I didn't want to speculate because I don't like it when people don't know what they're talking about. So uh, like I just reported what happened, but um, yeah, I, di I did wonder about that. There's the, the doorknob guy. We do have his backstory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I've teased that. Should I talk about the doorknob guy? Well, yeah, I was, yeah. I was just going to say that was next in my line of notes. That's That kind of oh. follows right after that other story. Well, this kind of ends the chapter on unusual requests. Um, 
after we talk about, yeah, there was the SpongeBob guy. There, there's some stuff that I don't know. Did some of it make you wince, Dan? Some of the things guys like to do. Yeah, the 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 being kicked and punched in the groin and and having your testicles stomped on that that yeah. That, that I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I, to each their own, I wouldn't, it's not a thing for me, but I, and I've heard about things like that before, but yeah, it's, it, it still baffles me that anybody would enjoy that. But if you do, I guess that's, that's fine. Yeah. You know, I hate raw carrots, but I'm not going to hold it against you if you like them. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if, um, if that's what guys like to do, again, more power to them. And that's how the the women I interviewed, I should throw in that I also talked to some male prostitutes, but the bulk of the interviews were with women. And, uh, you know, that's their attitude is if the guy wants to do it and I'm, I'm willing, then I'm happy to do it for him. And I just think that's fantastic. And you think about the level of trust, because supposing you're a guy who wants something that wants to do something that might make your or my skin crawl. The level of trust he has to have in this woman to actually say, um, I'd like to do this. You know, there's got to be some trust going because he doesn't know if she's going to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the guy, uh, the guy who paid a woman to sit there in her underwear and puff her cheeks while he masturbated. Um, you know, I, I, in the book, I mentioned this. I asked her, how did you do that without laughing? And she said, well, it was the 500 bucks or yeah. whatever it was he paid her. Yeah. So. But uh, well, and let's go back, let's go back to, to the doorknob guy. This this is a guy who who couldn't get off unless he was holding a doorknob, right? To the point where right. he had a detached doorknob that he would keep on the bedside table. Yes, when he slept with his. Wife. This guy was not a client of a sex worker, as far as I know. I learned about this from a social worker who'd who'd treated the guy. Yeah, the guy mm-hmm. could not climax unless he was hanging onto a doorknob, and uh, and his wife was getting kind of tired of that. Partly because, I mean, how do you compete with a doorknob? And partly because maybe she wanted attention from both of his hands and maybe it was just tiresome. But on therapy, what they found out was this guy, and this could this could shed some light on the SpongeBob guy. This fellow, when he was a kid, was doing what most normal young men do. And if you're a Mormon boy, you have to make sure you don't get caught. And that was masturbate. So he's in his bathroom, but the door didn't have a lock. So he'd hold on to that doorknob with all his might to make sure no one could come in while he pleasured himself with the other hand. And eventually he came to associate gripping a doorknob with sexual climax. So once he was a grown man and married, it was like any time his wife started putting the moves on him, he'd have have to say, wait a minute, let me get the doorknob. And he was able to get past that. But again, I find that, um, yes, it's funny. It's, I think it's okay to chuckle because it's kind of unusual. But I don't like to mock the man himself. That was his, his baggage and his thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we've all got our hang-ups and weird things. And it's interesting that you were able to secure this information from the providers. And, well, and let me talk a little bit, too. Like, you use specific terminology for these sex workers. You You call them providers and... Um, is it cl- not clients? Uh, what do you Sex call workers? Johns. Oh, and hobbyists. Hobbyists. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And that apparently yeah, the Johns is, call themselves hobbyists. And, and that mm-hmm. is, that is a result of, I mean, that lingo comes from them trying to avoid law enforcement to a large degree. Is that right? I don't think so. Um, oh, okay. No, as um, so there are websites out there where the um, sex workers will advertise and where the clients can go on and actually write reviews. 
So, and I've just noticed the nomenclature on those websites tends to be referring to the women, to the sex workers. I, I keep saying women. I want to be clear that there are men too who are sex workers. Um, but it refer, the sex workers prefer to call themselves providers, at least on these websites. And the men who are on their writing reviews are frequenters. They're not just occasional clients and they call themselves hobbyists and they refer to seeing sex workers as the, the hobby. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to where I was sensitive to that. I don't like the word hooker. I'm not fond of the word prostitute. Both of those tend to have baggage. I use them occasionally in the book, but I tended towards sex worker and provider to show them some respect. The only time I used hooker, I think, was when I was quoting somebody. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I mean, I'm I'm certain, too, that within the industry themselves, the the providers themselves and the hobbyists themselves wanted to humanize themselves you know like that that doesn't strike me as out of nowhere you know even out of the police i think more so not wanting to have that baggage you know once they started opening up um and did they ever humanize themselves i mean again my my respect for these people was was high uh, by the time we finished the interviews i'm thinking about one woman i interviewed who um just one of the nice well a lot of them just plain nice people but um she was 16 with two kids and a ne'er-do-well boyfriend who had two kids by another woman living somewhere else. And he decided to abandon her. And the next week or so, his ex shows up with the two kids he had by her and dumps those two kids oh. with this woman and disappears. So she's got two kids by this guy and then two of these guys, two kids that he had with another woman. And they're all four of them now with her. It did not cross her mind not to take care of the two kids. They'd been dumped. They needed a mom. And so she worked like the Dickens to support these four kids. Now, at first, she was doing minimum wage jobs and shoplifting to get by. And I think it was when she reached 20 that uh, she decided to start as a legal escort and eventually moved on to being to, to actually selling sexual services. And uh, but what a wonderful person. It never crossed her mind not to take care of these kids. Mm-hmm. One of the things you talk about later in the book when you're interviewing the sheriff and, and Daniel have to remind me of his name because I'm not as familiar with Utah politics. And Jim Winder, who, remember, who through yeah. your writing, Steve, I like he, my respect for Jim Winder like peaked through reading your book. I, I had no idea he was so open minded and it just seems like a genuinely decent guy. Mm-hmm. He was a delightful surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most yeah, of the and, other, and, most of the other police officers that you discuss in your, in your book, really sound like complete bastards. It sounds like there's a lot of abuse of authority and um, threat of punishment and imprisonment and extortion. Just a, a, a lot of really seedy bad shit that happens with a lot of regular beat police. But it, I, I was really impressed with uh, what Jim Winder said throughout your interviews with him in the book. He, he, as I said, he was quite, quite a surprise because I opened by saying, um, first of all, the fact that he was willing to be interviewed on the record mm-hmm. was surprising. And he was the Moab County, Moab, Moab city sheriff at the time. And he had been the Salt Lake County sheriff for, I don't remember how long, but uh, I opened by saying, look, I don't want to mislead. I happen to think there's nothing wrong with what these women do. Now, I should, for the benefit of listeners, I should point out the sex workers I interviewed are not pimped. And they're not coerced. They're not 
They haven't been abducted or anything. They all have opted into the profession. So they're there out of choice. I didn't interview anybody who had been trafficked in the common sense that we use the word trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I opened and I, I told him about the women I'd interviewed. And I said, you know, they, um, they're not streetwalkers. They aren't coerced. And I happen to think they provide a valuable service. And I think it should be, it should not be illegal. And I'm telling you this up front because if you want to stop the interview right now or if you want to set me straight, I'm willing to be turned around if, if you've got a good argument. And he said, no, I absolutely agree with you based on what you've said. And he said, if there's no coercion and no one's being harmed, I think we're essentially, he said, we're wasting our time going after it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was incredible that yeah. here's here's a person working in law enforcement, not just as as your run of the mill cop, but somebody of real authority in law enforcement who recognizes that, you know, by and large, the the at least for the people that you spoke with, it's a victimless crime. Not only is it a victimless crime, they're providing a valuable service to a lot of different people. There there are different interviews that you have throughout the book with people who display a, an unusually or or un, not unusually, but an, a definitely unexpected level of compassion for the people that they're providing these services for. And it was just, there were a lot of really heartwarming stories in your, in your book about services that are being provided to people who are not able to receive these services in, in the way that most other people by and large do. Mm -hmm. If I can um, give you a case in point, one of the male providers I interviewed, and I don't, I, I tend to um, choke up when I talk about this one. He was hired by a quadriplegic. And so he went to see the guy and, and he said at first he thought maybe his, his buddies were punking him. But no, he showed up and here's a guy in a wheelchair, can't move his arms, can't move his legs. He communicates with some kind of electronic device, but he can just indicate yeses and nos essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the provider uh, showed up. I think I call him Gene in the book. And uh, Gene shows up and he says, do you understand what I'm trying, what I'm here for? And the guy says, yes. And is it okay to proceed? And the guy gives his permission. And uh, so here's this guy who couldn't possibly get a female companion on his own merits, really. And he had a wonderful time. And, you know, Gene left thinking, man, I was kind of like one of his um, medications. The guy had such a good time and he felt it was just a heartwarming thing mm -hmm. that this guy appreciated it so much. Yeah, it reminded me. You know, of a, a, oh, go ahead. It reminded you. Oh, um, uh, there's a quote somewhere in the book from a book by uh, John Steinbeck where he talks about how um, there, there's security in seeing a sex worker because you don't have to worry about rejection. And that's kind of what some of these, you know, um, Boop, I interviewed women, call, two women calling themselves Betty and Boop for purposes of the book. And, you know, Boop talks about these guys who, who are some of their clients who have absolutely no skills. They're... Um, they're, they're like Dan, you know, because they're computer workers. <laughs> so absolutely no social skills and couldn't get a girl if they tried. And, you know, again, it's a service for these guys and it's needed and it's thoughtful. And I think it's fantastic. And I was kidding about Dan. He's, you know, he's really very, very cute. And you should all hit on him. <laughs> no, he's off the market now. Oh, no. oh that's right. He's, and yep. he's engaged. I put a ring on it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you want to tell us why atheists get married, Dan? <laughs> we covered that in a prior episode. Uh, thank you very much. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was I was struck at how normal, um, in every sense of the word, so many of the providers and and the hobbyists were. You know, one thing that that really struck me is is that I think that a lot of folks have interests sexually that fall outside of, of the, you know, puritanical missionary position sex, um, and, and, you know, desire for, for frequency and variety, uh, you know, and, and then the types of, of, of people who are drawn to the profession seem to be such, such a normal grouping. You know what I mean? Everything from, uh, as you discussed, some of the streetwalkers who are truly, you know, desperate people to, uh, one woman who was like very financially well established and just did it because she enjoyed doing it. Um, and it just struck mm, me how normal. To normal. To. What's that? Yeah. These are real people. That, and that applies to a few of the, the people I spoke to who were, uh, one of the men I spoke to was financially independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, one of the women was financially independent and then another one was extremely well to do. I mean, there's, there's Nikki in the book who'd been a successful stockbroker for 14 years. And right. I, you right. know, you may remember the money quote she gave me, which was, uh, but I, I, I can't believe how predatory people are. That's why I'm glad I'm not a stockbroker anymore and I'm a sex worker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's just, I, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's crazy to me to think that we live in a society where people will on one side of their mouth denounce, you know, different sex acts or, or the profession. And on, you know, the other side, uh, benefit from those services. Um, it's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you encountered um, many instances of hypocrisy amongst members of, of the LDS church, including uh, one individual, and I'm not going to be so gauche as to ask you who he is. You kept him anonymous. I'm not going to ask you, but but one individual who you said was a high-ranking member of the church. And, and these are folks who rail against this profession. And I, I wanted to know from your end, like why, I guess this is me being young and strident, but like, why didn't you call these people out more? You know, and I'm not saying that as a judgment against you, I want to know, like, why didn't you call these people out more? Like, where, where were you coming from? What was your perspective that way? Well, are you asking why I didn't call them out by name? No, I'm, I'm asking, um, I, I almost would have expected more in the should it be legal chapter that um, spoke to like the actual hypocrisy of, of members of the church or politicians, the, what was the word that you used? It, you acronymed it, but like the, the very moral politicians or something like that. And, and you kind of called them out, but I was almost wondering if there wouldn't be more of a, Hey, like this is a hypocrisy. Like, the, you know, there are X number of people who are doing this. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know the best way to phrase it, but I felt like there was a little bit of a gap there. Personally, like I, I wanted to know where that I could was have hammered on that very, point a little harder. Is what you're saying? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, you've got more experience in this than I do. And so I want to know, like, what was your thought process behind that? Because I'm not saying, like, damn you, Steve, you should have. I'm asking, like, <laughs> why didn't you? Well, you most know, people think, I damn you, Steve, followed by one thought or another. <laughs> um, actually, I have a very succinct and Complete answer to that question, which is I don't know. Okay. Fair. Fair. <laughs> I uh, you know I did I did address the hypocrisy here and there. Why I didn't hammer it harder? It, 
wasn't really thought out. I, I discussed it where it was and just demonstrated it where it was, but I didn't really go on any kind of a rant about it. Rather, I just pointed out sometimes when, you know, like the, the fellow you alluded to, um, this was, so I had made it clear to my providers that I didn't want to know any names. And of course they wouldn't have offered them anyway. This was one where I was able to identify him because I happened to know him personally and not well, but well enough that I was able to recognize him from a few details the provider had dropped. And it just knocked me for a loop because he, yes, he's high up in government. He's high up in church and uh, you guys would know the name. And I was struck, first of all, by the stupid risk he was taking because he was seeing lots of them, not just one. And and then, as you pointed out, Taylor, yeah, he's in a position to excommunicate. He's in a position to prosecute and to pass laws. And I just thought, how does this, you know, what he does and whether or not his wife was aware of it, that's between him and his conscience. I have nothing to say about that. But the utter hypocrisy of prosecuting and excommunicating people for doing what he does or or prosecuting and excommunicating providers for providing what he purchases. Now, I don't know if he's still an active client or not, but he has been. And mm -hmm. it just, that's what bugged the heck out of me. I Again, if you want to see a call girl, see a call girl. But don't turn around and prosecute somebody else for seeing sex workers. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And don't excommunicate them. You know, and if you're a Mormon, resign from the church or something, you know. Yeah. This is Matt Dillahunty, and you're listening to The Godless Revolution. These people deserve to feel important and connected to. And if they could find that somewhere else, they would have. We're all people that need help. We pay for help all the time. We pay for tax attorneys. We pay for car repairs. We pay for childcare, housekeeping. There is just this huge stigma around sex. Just as much as we seek healing for our minds and our bodies, we ought to be free to seek healing for our hearts and, well, our parts, too. Just as you'd hire a mental health professional, I'm a sexual health professional, but it's not about the sex. It's about intimacy and connection. Thank you. If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! And if you could, for our listeners um, who who haven't read your book yet, um, or, or honestly are, are too busy to get to it, right? Like I hate to say that. Like you listeners should go out and buy Steve's book, but um, I feel several like copies best, like, a piece. I might add, yeah, yeah absolutely. And review. <laughs> you don't it, have please, to read it if you, you need do. to buy it. Um, yeah, you need to yeah. like build a wall out of them. Mm -hmm. um, no, so so I wanted to, to ask if you would be willing to give your, you know, it, it, your argument for what you call um, making indoor prostitution legally permissible. And you kind of work around some of the current disputed, you know, 
differences between legal versus decriminalized and you distinguish between streetwalkers and and um, the providers that you covered predominantly in your book, if you'd like to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. But I, if you'd be willing to for our listeners to kind of lay out your case for, for legalizing, um, I think it would be well, a good benefit. It's lucky I have a copy of the book handy. <laughs> um, yeah, first of all, on, on terminology. Um, when I'd start talking about legalization, somebody would jump on me and say, you mean decriminalization? And so I consulted with some with two different attorneys and asked the difference between legalization and decriminalization. Got two totally different definitions. Then I actually did some Google work on it, and I couldn't find anyone who agreed on what the terms meant. So I finally went with legally permissible so that nobody would jump down my throat whenever I talked about it. But I do think whatever you call it, it should be legally permissible. Now, I've got some some qualifiers there. Um, again, if we're talking about opt-in sex workers, yes, legally permissible. Not streetwalkers, because that's just kind of a blight uh, not the profession itself, but, um, you know, we're, one of the authors I read um, calls it indoor prostitution, which is what these people I interviewed do. They'll they'll meet you at a hotel room or they'll rent an apartment for the purpose and you can meet them there. It's discreet. It's not under anybody's nose. And again, it's because it's discreet. It's not hurting anybody. You don't even, you know, you could have one of those apartments next door to yours and you wouldn't even know it because they're not having a hundred guys in and out all day long. You know, maybe two or three show up a day uh, on a day, maybe, maybe one a day, maybe not even that often. So it's, there are no, it's not there are no face. cars rocking back and forth in the parking lot. There are no used <laughs> condoms littering the sidewalk, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, back to Jim Winder, you know, he said, as you've described it, I see nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, so why shouldn't it be legal? And the real reason as I, I go through some of the arguments, and we can take those one at a time if, if that's what you'd like me to do. But the big thing I, oh, go ahead, Taylor. I was just going to say, I don't, I don't want you to have to like belabor the point, I guess, if you have, have your like succinct version, because I don't want to like draw you out that way or have you just read from your book. I think that the, you know, listeners should go out and read it. But if you could give them like the, the Cliff Notes version of that argument, I think that that would okay. encourage them to see the deeper version, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I'll just rattle some off the top of my head instead of leafing through the book. How's that go? How's that sound? (laughs) So uh, I'll start with my conclusion, though, which is most of the people who think prostitution should not be legal are coming from a standpoint of they find it yucky. They think it's yucky. Yucky is not a legal argument, but that's what they think. It's, It's yucky or God says you shouldn't do it. Um, I'm suspecting that a good many of your listeners are atheists. Um, And so, you know, and I've explained this to a number of friends. When you take, when you're, when you're making moral choices and you take God says don't do it out of the equation, now you're left with reason. And I have reasoned and reasoned, and I cannot come up with a reason for this thing to be illegal. Now, some people will say, well, it's got organized crime in it. Well, not if you legalize it. Yeah. And I'm going to throw around legalization cavalierly now because I've I've kind of established what I mean is legally permissible. You know, you get the mob involved when you make something illegal. You, you get the mob out of it. You know, a good demonstration of that right now. So in Oregon, it's legal to buy weed, right? Mm-hmm. There are four marijuana dispensaries, legal ones, within walking distance of my house. Mm. 
But Oregon has an interesting problem. And I couldn't figure it out at first. They're, they're busting illegal weed growers all the time in this state. And I found myself saying, why? It's legal here. Well, they're growing it to sell to the st- in states where it's not legal. <laughs> so you make it illegal, you promote it. And you make it more expensive and you make it more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're saying the mob gets involved, well, the way you get the mob out of it is you make it legal. Um, mm-hmm. there's the whole, you wouldn't want your daughter doing this. And, and I just, I read this columnist, I can't remember her name now, but I just loved what she said. She said, there are lots of things I don't want to imagine my daughter doing. I don't want to imagine her having sex at all. I don't want to imagine her voting Republican. And she goes <laughs> on and on and on. And then finally says, but in the end, it is her choice. And what I don't want to picture her doing is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. There's the, the uh, idea of disease transmission. Well, you know, Nevada has very low disease transmission. They have condom laws that the brothel association itself lobbied to get. Um, and they have latex glove laws. Uh, lots of health, you know, the, the women are routinely checked uh, health-wise. I think they have semi-annual blood tests or maybe it's monthly. I can't remember. It's in the book. Um, so it's actually a lot safer when it's legal than when it's not. And and here's the thing, when you make it legal, if you have, say, a condom law, all of a sudden, like the Nevada brothels can shrug and say, hey, look, guy, I'm sorry you don't like it, but it's the law. And they don't have to worry about the guy saying, well, I'll go to the brothel where they don't require condoms because there's no such thing. And incidentally, in um, Nevada counties that have legalized prostitution, there are no streetwalkers. It cleans it right up. Why would you hire a streetwalker when you can walk into a brothel? Um, mm-hmm. So, and and uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, you know, we talked about how sex workers can are, provide a benefit to their clients. They provide a benefit to everybody, non-users included, because I did my research on this, and it seems that everywhere that prostitution has been legalized, rape goes down, sex mm-hmm. crimes go down. That surprised me, quite frankly, because it doesn't quite fit the sociological profile of the rapist we talk about, but the numbers are there. I really can't come up with a reason. I can come up with lots of reasons why um, illegal prostitution is a bad idea. Legal prostitution, I think it's a great idea. It also allows protections to the women. The guy beats you up. You're a sex worker. Good luck going to the police right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You get legal protections. He doesn't pay you. You'll have legal protections. Good. That's all needful. And it would put, it would put pimps right out of business. I, I think it's the way to go. There's a quick summary. It's not the whole chapter, but a quick summary. Did I miss I really anything? I appreciate you for that. No, I no, no, no. I mean, that's just your content. I just wanted to make sure that, that as many people as possible could, could hear that you know like if there's a crux of your book besides the the humanization of the stories that we get from the um providers and from the hobbyists i think it's it's you know that it's time for this argument to be had um have you had any have you had any feedback or, or any interaction or anything like that with um policymakers as a result of this not so far, but the book's just barely out. I'm really hoping some right-wing policy um, 
policymaker will go public and rant and rave and try to ban the book. That would be great for sales. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, it might've been on your show where one of you asked Joanne years ago, have you had any death threats? And her answer was, I wished, you know how many books I'd sell. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, one question that I had right off the bat when I first started reading it was when or ever did the fear of getting arrested go away? For me? Yeah, from, from you, from actually going out and doing this. Like, like you're right, like the first time you did that interview, how you were checking your mirrors and worried that, like, it's a cop following me. Am I going to get busted as soon as I walk in there? Well, like, yeah, and, and we haven't... go away? Yeah, and we haven't really talked about how you secured the interviews and, and conducted the interviews and and what types of remuneration were provided and, and what the expectations were on either side of the fence. Okay, so let me back up a little bit. Uh, and I alluded to this earlier, but I had a meeting with my attorney where um, I'd said these women are going to charge for interviews. And he said, do not, do not, do not, do not pay them for an interview. Why? You know, that's not unusual to pay for interviews. I mean, you guys are writing me checks as we speak, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, let me get my pen. Of course okay. we are. Thank you, Patreon yeah. supporters. <laughs> it's, it's in the mail. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I thought this was a service in kind. Hey, oh. listeners, go buy his book. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, very good. Taylor gets a star on his forehead. <laughs> so... What was the question? Oh, <laughs> I'm an old guy. Just, just basically how you secured the interviews and how oh, that all went right. down and, and if you had to pay okay. for them, all that kind of stuff. So I want to back up and say why he told me not to pay for an interview, though, and that was, he said, supposing the police are watching this woman, they suspect she's a provider, and now you meet her for coffee somewhere and you hand her a couple hundred bucks, you're under arrest. You've just been seen handing money to a sex worker. Mm. And I said, you know, come on, I... As as my accountant pointed out, I can prove I'm an author. I can prove I've got a book project. And he said, yeah, imagine good luck in front of a judge saying, honest to your honor, <laughs> this is for a book, <laughs> uh, even if it's true. And besides, you can, I couldn't establish that it was only for a book. So uh, back to your question of when did the fear of getting busted go away? It never did. Hmm. The first time I um, got invited, I, I had I had gone online. And, and found a bunch of sex workers advertise online. They, they need to be found or they have no business. So, um, and I can talk about how they're careful not to be illegal in their advertising. Um, but I had one finally respond and I had sent emails to, to a bunch of them, text messages actually saying, here's what I'm doing. I'm an author. Here's how you check me out. Um, and I'd love to come talk to you. And I heard nothing. And then finally I got a text from a woman who said, I just had a cancellation. Do you want to come over? Which meant, do you want to come over to the apartment that I maintain for this purpose that she shares with three other sex workers who, who, you know, use it for bookings the way you might share a conference room in a business? Like, like a place the cops might watch. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, but you know, this was my first, my breakthrough interview because I needed someone to vouch for me because no one was trusting me. For all they knew, I was a cop or a, or a pervert. And I'm not a cop. And so, um, I, the other thing. You know, so I walked up to her door looking over my shoulder, not just other police, but does anyone live in this apartment complex who might recognize me? And, uh, you know, and, and is she a police decoy? And, but once the conversation got going, we sat in her living room and talked and, and it was fine. But then on my way home, I had done my homework. I knew they couldn't just pull me over for no reason. 
just for having been seen walking out of an apartment, no matter what they know goes on in the apartment. But the least traffic violation would be cause to pull me over. And so I just drove very carefully home, watching my mirrors, making sure I didn't exceed the speed, exceed the speed limits, hoping like crazy a taillight wouldn't go out. And, you know, I got home and I was fine. But that, that nervousness, um, the apprehension is a better word, never went away because I was talking to people who were breaking the law. One of the reasons I talked to my attorney was because I know I'm talking to people breaking the law. Am I in trouble for not turning them in? And he said, no, you're under no obligation to report a, cli- a crime. And I, and I hope that's good information. Do not take legal advice from a podcast. I've heard that somewhere. Um, but the apprehension was always there. Whether I met them for lunch or went to the apartment they maintained, um, I was always a little nervous and kind of wondering who's, who's going to see us. And, you know, is somebody going to flash a badge and book me? I was damn lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been nervous. Yeah. Um, well, and so because you mentioned it, how are they careful to not be illegal in their advertising? Okay. In, in the advertising, first of all, it, being an escort in Utah is legal. By that meaning someone can pay you for a date, they can pay you for company, they can pay you to undress for them as long as there's no touching of the naughty parts. <laughs> and and I want to interject here real quick because you had a quote that I loved um, from the late Dan Carlin, which was, I don't get it. Selling is legal. Fucking is legal. Why isn't selling fucking legal? <laughs> isn't that wonderful? <laughs> or George Carlin? Yeah. George, Did I say George Dan Carlin. Carlin instead. I'm an you asshole. <laughs> He's not dead yet. My it, bad. With George Ellis. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah, no, you're right. You're okay. right. I'm young. I'm more familiar with the Rome guy than the comedy guy. <laughs> but it is a brilliant quote. I I couldn't wait to use that. You, yeah. you know, George Carlin was was always funny, but in in his later routines, he was not so much doing comedy as social commentary. And that's when he was mm-hmm. his funniest. Mm-hmm. We're on a tangent now. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I, I was always nervous. And even I did visit a uh, an Elko, Nevada brothel, an all Asian Elko, Nevada brothel. I did. I walked in and sat at the bar and chatted with someone. And even then it was weird walking in, realizing it's, I'm it's legal. It's legal. I can march in here unabashed, but I was abashed. And again, you wonder, because so many of their clients come from Utah. That's why I included Elko in the book, because they are almost de facto Salt Lake area providers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I thought, hmm, I'm just my luck to, you know, be walking into this place as a neighbor walks out or something. <laughs> it's a book, I swear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank God the book's finally out so I can say, see, here's well, a book. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that you made me realize while I was reading the book and, and it is weird to me that it hadn't actually occurred to me before reading your book is um, in chapter two, uh, one of the, one of the footnotes footnote number nine, actually. Um, Jeez. That's specific. It says, <laughs> well, it says wait, that wait, pop quiz. What's footnote number 47. Uh, I, could, I could find that pretty. Not, easily. <laughs> well, and only I'm allowed to be that specific (laughs) (laughs) but but this particular footnote you're you had been talking about uh joseph smith and polygamy in the lds faith early on and that it was kept on the down low initially and the footnote says that a popular mormon version of the angel and sword tale goes like this and for people who are unaware uh, joseph smith 
started polygamy in the LDS church. Um, and when he did, he told various people that it was because he was commanded to it. He was commanded to do it, that an angel with a flaming sword told him that he had to do it. So the footnote says um, that a popular Mormon version of the angel and sword tale goes like this. When God told Smith to take multiple wives, the prophet aghast refused. It took God sending an armed angel to force his compliance. There are two problems with this version. The first is that it doesn't match the young women's accounts. And the second is that it only removes the blame for polygamy from Smith to God. Either way, there is a word for the act of forcing people to engage in sex under threat of violence. That word is rape. And it hadn't occurred to me until reading that, that Joseph Smith was a rapist. By, he was a rapist. Yeah, by all accounts. Like, mm -hmm. that, that, that had never actually occurred to me because he had removed, you know, he had pushed that off enough, at least in my mind without, you know, thinking about it deeply, he had pushed off any reason for forcing these women or coercing these women into sex as a commandment from God. So everything should just be fine. It hadn't now occurred to me that, that that's actually right. A commandment from God. Yeah. So if you read Doctrine and Covenants section 132, which is the revelation on polygamy, um, supposedly given to Joseph Smith, there is this thing that says, um, first of all, when this law is revealed to you, the law being that you got to take lots of wives, you are under condemnation if you don't obey it, mm. which is interesting because it was revealed to the whole church, but not the whole church engaged in it. But if you, and then it went on to say that a woman who was a first wife had the option to reject additional wives. Uh, she could kind of pick and choose, mm -hmm. but it also said, and if she declines a wife, then the guy can have her anyway, and the woman shall be destroyed. Yeah. Okay, that's a threat. Mm -hmm. So, um, that, not necessarily rape in that case, but that's a threat. But then you take Joseph Smith, who shows up to these girls. Yeah, the popular story is an angel, God had to send an angel with a sword to force Joseph Smith to be a polygamist because Joseph said, no, never, not me. Bullshit. <laughs> Joseph, when Joseph was trying to seduce some young women, we know of at least two, where the women said no, and Smith said, you can't see him, but I can. There's an angel there holding a flaming sword, and he's going to cut me to pieces before your very eyes if you don't comply. Well, here's this frightened teenager. This is the prophet of God in front of her. She doesn't want to see him cut to pieces, and she doesn't want to be the reason. So, okay, you can fuck me. Now, that if that's not rape, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sex under coercion, sex under threat. Sure, he didn't beat her up necessarily, but he, he coerced it. Mm -hmm. That's called rape. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a willing yeah. participant. Right, exactly. And and I also, for the standards of the time, she was underage, right? Absolutely. Even for, I happened to look this up one day because you hear, you know, Joseph Smith had a couple of 14 year old brides. I love the way the church addresses that. Two of them were a few months shy of their 15th birthday. Oh, well. <laughs> Not <Yeah>. any better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I'll hear people say, well, you know, women, girls, it wasn't unusual for girls to marry at 14, 15, and 16 in those days. So I looked it up. The average marriage age in 1830 was between 22 and 24, mm -hmm. just like today. Yeah, yeah Edgar Allan Poe yeah. married a 14-year-old, but those were exceptions, not the rule. 
Mm-hmm. And hopefully the 14 year old who I think was his cousin. Yeah. As uh, I say, he was related to her too. I thought. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and hopefully she consented. I don't know, but, um, you know, it's coerced and yeah, they're underage. And then a lot of Joseph Smith's polygamist wives were also married. He was very good at sending their husbands out of town on church business and then hitting up the wives, which is what Mormons don't know this by and large, but that's what led to his execution. Well, something they don't know it; they just don't want to know it. Well, it's it's not. Yeah, there is motivated ignorance going on, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the church sanitizes its history very carefully, very adeptly. So you you wouldn't know that unless you did some extracurricular reading. Mm. Yeah, and mm, yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to say we're we're just about out of time. During the Patreon portion of the show, which we will have, uh, you have a couple different stories that were not included in the book that you wanted to share with us. Three, to be exact. Oh, awesome. That will be a whole lot of fun. So we will talk about those in the Patreon portion of the show that will be coming up shortly uh, for those who are Patreon patrons. For those who are not, the last question I had for you is what was the most interesting or shocking thing you learned while writing the book? Probably the most shocking thing was the one public figure I alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. The most interesting thing, I think, was the human side of these people that I interviewed, the the men and women who are sex workers who, you know, they have kids. They worry about their teenagers. They have relationship problems. They have car payments. They have day-to-day lives. And these are real people doing work to get by, and they're providing a valuable service. Um, you know, there were a couple where it struck me as a little bit unhinged and, but most of them that I talked to, the vast majority were just good, decent people eager to share their stories and the stories were impressive. Mm-hmm. And again, some of them were funny too. I mean, there's, there's the woman who at great personal risk when she learned that one of her clients was a child molester. She called the police on him. She could have been busted for admitting she Uh, was a sex worker. uh And that has happened in the past. Now, Utah has a law now that prevents that. If you're a sex worker in Utah and you find out one of your clients is a criminal, you can actually report him and you're safe. Oh, that's good. Mm. Which uh, Nikki, whom I interviewed, was instrumental in getting that law passed. Um, You know, there was... um, I just found so many instances of just genuine, nice people. And and then the way they were very open with me, one woman I went to interview was interesting. By the time I got to her apartment, she said, um, you know, I've been thinking, I don't think I want to do this after all. And I sort of fine. And I closed my pad folio and I started telling her stories that the other providers had told, had told me. And she suddenly said, "Never mind, I want to do this. <laughs> she told me stories. It was great. <laughs> So um, can I can I tease with the op- the book's opening story before we move to the Patreon part? Absolutely, yes. please. So because this is I, I don't know this is my favorite. <laughs> you were asking my favorites. This is my favorite opener, I guess. Well, it's it's only the only opener. Um, <laughs> I talked to this woman who is active Mormon. She's a primary teacher, and even in that moment, well, I'll tell you how she won my respect here. She, you know, I, I didn't want to say, you're kidding, you're a primary teacher? Because I didn't want to shame and I didn't want her to feel abashed and be quiet suddenly. So I thought, how do I put this? And I finally said, you know, I've been Mormon. I know the rules. And so I'm curious how you juggle being a, a sex worker with being a primary teacher. She shrugged and said, I just do. 
And I really liked that because men go to such lengths. Some of the guys I talk about in the book go to such lengths to make it okay. Like I'm not masturbating if my hand is flat instead of, you know, gripping the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's not cheating on my wife if I'm paying for it. You know, the guys are so good at rationalizing. And here's a woman who doesn't rationalize. She just says, yeah, I just do it. You know, I liked that. <laughs> but anyhow, so she told me about how she um, was meeting this brand new client. And there are steps the men go through and the women will go through to make sure as best they can that they're not walking into a sting. And this guy had done his homework and she had checked him out and they actually will call references. Who else have you seen? And you tell them a couple of names and she'll call the other women and they'll tell you whether or not you want to see him. And this guy checked out. So she got herself dolled up and went to the hotel, rode the elevator up, knocked on the door. Mind you, she's an active Mormon. She's a primary teacher. The door opens and there stands the second counselor in her bishopric. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that was kind of that transaction was abruptly ended before it began as she scurried away and and they pretended it was just all a misunderstanding. And the next week at church, they just ignored each other. Life as usual. And that, again, got me back to the hypocrisy angle. This guy, as a member of a bishopric, is excommunicating people Mm -hmm. for what she does and what he does. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Or less. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's it's a great book. I, I really enjoyed every minute of it and appreciate you coming on the show. We will be moving into the Patreon portion of the show momentarily. Before we do that, I want to make sure that we thank our Patreon supporters. That would be Two Skeptical Chaps. A noble spirit embiggens the smallest man, a perfectly cromulent statement. Alan Firth. All hail, Peanut Buttra. Came for the rebel, stayed for the Lucian. Doug Willoughby, a new Patreon. Thank you. Uh, Hunter Grin. John McCullough. Ollie Olson. Sinead Duffy. Steve Kuno. <laughs> I'm so glad that we've, that we've, that we worked out the pronunciation there. <laughs> Stephen Andrews. Theodore Sellen. Tiffany Hudson. Travis Lindbergh. Vanessa. Benjamin Davis, another new Patreon supporter. Thank you so much. Woohoo! Corey Ebert. Don't be a Richard. Freethinker215. Good news, everyone. Jeff Peterson. Jeremy Goodson. Uh, I'm going to. Marvin Dracone. <laughs> that's. I think that's close. Sounds okay. good. You Matt- can yell at me. <laughs> Matthew Sanders. Megan Mitchell. Updog programmer. I still love that one. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Utah Outcasts. Wesley Aaron. Janet Uter. Purple Dragon. Uh, Ryan Mayfield. Sarah Segovia. Savita Kuna. Socialized Healthcare Saved My Life. Tim Jacobson. Trisha Weir. Cletus the Slackjawed Local wants you to please support Phil Abundance or your local food bank. <laughs> that was that was close. You said local instead of yokel. Oh, did I? 
Motherfucker. <laughs> That's uh, fine. <laughs> Ryan's just like jawed local. <laughs> Ryan's just like, yes. <laughs> Do it live. Yokel. Cleanest the slack jawed yokel wants you to please support Phil Abundance or your local food bank. <laughs> oh no, this will not stand. <laughs> and James, thank you all so very much for your patronage. We really appreciate it. It helps a lot of things. I recently got a 900 plus fucking bill from our hosting provider and so i'm looking for a new hosting provider yeah, because we're gonna talk with them that's way too much uh but thank you all that that helps keep the show going for sure it helps us do all kinds of things and it gives you bonuses one of the bonuses that you'll get for this episode is an extended interview with steve i think it runs about a half hour or more yeah. uh, where he tells us yeah. Uh, three of three additional stories, and we have some asides that are a whole lot of fun. I just, I, I really like Steve a lot. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah, and he will he be returning cool in the future. Yeah, and Mighty he's righteous dude. <laughs> he's, and he's one of those guys that the more interactions that I have with him, the more I like him. There, there, he's, he's one of those rare individuals where the more time I spend talking to him and getting to know him, the more I like him. Usually it's the opposite for me. Like, yeah, unlike us. <laughs> like I have, like I have these expectations like, oh, I know a little bit about this person. They seem awesome. And then the more I learn about them, the more I think how not as awesome as I initially thought they were. They are. Oh, well, fuck you too, Trump. man. But, uh, <laughs> you guys are clearly exceptions, but, but no, I just, I really like Steve. He's, he's just a great guy. He's just super fun, smart, witty, funny. I, I like him a whole lot. And I think our audience will as well. Yeah. So go listen in Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and please, if you uh, if you enjoyed the interview, if you enjoyed the kind of stuff we were talking about, grab his book. Um, support authors. Uh, you know, people put a lot of work into making art and and performing. Honestly, good investigative journalism. Like he, he says, he's a marketer. That was a piece of journalism that he did. Please, please go support that. And mm -hmm. then go over to Amazon, leave it a review, so more people can more easily find it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you guys. I am going to go have some dinner now. I think I'm going to do the same. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, <laughs> we'll talk with you later. Hopefully, this will be some free flow. And Dan's already hitting the bottle. Am I that trying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I started hitting the bottle well before you came on. <laughs> oh, okay. Just the thought of me did it, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was the anticipation for sure. All right. On the line, we have Steve Cuno. Steve, is that? Let me start over here. Is it Cuno or Cuno? How how do you pronounce? So are we not starting officially yet? Not officially yet, no. Okay, it's Kuno, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the you bastard part. And Dan, you're an old fart. Are you 50 yet? I will be 50 in a couple of years. My 48th is in 18 days. Wow. Yeah. Almost, almost 48. Now, we are, I did say age, not IQ. <laughs> oh, no, it's different then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad we clarified. This is Steve Kuno, author of the book Behind the Mormon Curtain, Selling Sex in America's Holy City. Going to try that again, ran out of air. <laughs> okay, this one will be good. This is Steve Kuno, author of the new book, Behind the Mormon Curtain, Selling Sex in America's Holy City. It's the result of three years of interviews with sex workers in the Salt Lake City area, most of whom... Shit. I uh, spent three years interviewing sex... Sex... Blah, 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 blah.
Which one did you like best? <laughs> the last I think one. The second one. Oh. <laughs> Good. Not the one with, that ended with shit. That's my favorite one. <laughs> Shit's fine. Okay. Well, it, I'm told it happens.